0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the aiconf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, my guest is Jerry Overton. He's a Senior Principal and Distinguished Technologist at DXC Technology. I've wanted the perspective of someone who works across industries and with a variety of companies. I specifically wanted to explore the current state of data science within companies and public sector agencies. As much as we talk about technologies and models and algorithms and use cases, There are also important issues that practitioners like Jerry need to address. And these things include privacy, security, and ethics. Actually, these are topics I've been trying to talk more about myself. So I gave a uh, keynote at Strata Singapore about transparency and fairness in machine learning and, and Strata San Jose on privacy preserving analytics. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Jerry Overton, Senior Principal in Distinguished Technologies at DXC Technology. Welcome to The Data Show. Hey, thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. So I see on your LinkedIn profile, you say you need development of AI offerings at DXC Technology. So very briefly, as a way to introduce you to our audience, what does DXC Technology do and uh, how would you describe what you do on a day-to-day basis yourself? Okay. Well.
1: DXC Technology, what we do, you know, we're a really large technology consulting firm. We do a lot of uh, integration work. We do a lot of technical consulting, implementation. It runs the gamut in all different industries. Now, my focus is in the analytics group, and I'm focused on artificial intelligence. So essentially what I do is we engage with clients and we identify areas of their business that have these intelligence gaps. So areas of their business that they want to make smarter. We help them build out... Portfolio of feasible AI data stories. That is, this is their portfolio of things that they could do to close that gap. And then we help them execute on on that portfolio. Really quickly build out um, a number of experiments to, um, you know, e- execute on the portfolio of data stories. And then we get to business value really quickly. That's essentially what I do on a day to day basis: is sitting down with clients, figuring out what their problems are, and running these agile sprints and getting them to the value.
0: So, Jerry, compare where we are today to say where we were, like let's say, three or five years ago. Because, uh, I think, for example, five years ago, people were talking about do an infrastructure and starting to build those out and collect data. So are we at the point, based on uh, your interactions with companies, where people have some of that in place and they're now taking the next step in doing analytics or machine learning?
1: Yeah, good question. Okay, so... Quick journey from five years ago to where we are now. And this is based on my experience in sitting down with clients and, you know, what I've heard from them and the struggles that we had then versus what we have now. So five years ago, we had this, I guess, money ball phase where money ball was new. This idea that you could actually get to value with data and that data would have something to say that could help you run your business better. That was kind of new, right? And you had to sell that. And I found myself in many conversations, just trying to prove that it's worth it to collect data. It's worth it to run some kind of analytics, and uh, you know, trying to prove out that there are meaningful patterns in the data. That was all about you know, putting together a repository, getting together a data lake, doing BI things like that. We've gone way past that now, to where you know, fast forward five years, I think it's pretty much a premise that. If you aren't using your data, you're losing out on a very big competitive advantage. I think it's pretty much a premise that data science is necessary uh, and that you need them to do something. Now, the big thing is companies are, are really unsure as to what their data scientists should be doing. So which areas of your business can you make smarter and how do you make it smarter? So companies are now struggling with, well, what can I actually do? Uh, to give myself a competitive advantage. And then you add on top of this, uh, artificial intelligence. Companies hear a lot about artificial intelligence and they've seen some pretty cool demos. So what you can do with like extending domain expertise or complex planning, inferring intent, things like that. And we're entering that same phase where there are a lot of companies that are kind of skeptical as to whether or not it can actually help them. And they're just trying to figure out, okay, show me something, uh, show me an example of, Artificial intelligence in business, and I don't know, it's convinced me that this is something that will actually really help me out here. So that's really where we are with with enterprises uh, today.
0: So a couple of questions. The first is, uh, in your experience, talking with a wide range of companies, do you think that job title data scientist is kind of a well-defined job title at this point, or it really does vary from industry to industry, region to region? Company to company.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So, in my experience, the title of data scientist seems to be consistent in, um, you know, in the enterprise, but it seems to be consistently off. So, what I mean by that—what <laughs> I mean by that—is a lot of enterprises assume that a data scientist is synonymous with algorithm developer. So, you know, the title data scientist is meant to, you know, be cast upon anyone who is capable of developing and running or keeping running any sort of machine learning algorithm. Uh, and the problem with that is, of course, you know, you and I know that d- data science is much more encompassing than that. You know, if you look at it as a, a real science, it's the application of the scientific method using data to verify a hypothesis. Now, when you look at it that way, there are much fewer companies who understand that broader definition of data scientist and who use their data scientists in that way. And you can definitely tell the difference between the companies who get that and the companies who don't because the ones who understand that they've hired scientists, right? That they have people who are able to nudge them in the direction of um, you know, a true hypothesis are the ones who end up getting the strategic value out of their data science teams.
0: So when once a company has data, right? So they have a few things that uh, they try to do with data. The first is improve decision making, usually through BI. And the second is through some form of automation, I guess, through machine learning and AI. So is this generally kind of the two buckets, you think, of of what people are doing with data? Yeah. So what I've seen is uh, four basic buckets. So the first is
1: they use data to monitor and predict, you know, monitor the business and predict problems. So uh, the first level of usage of data is just collecting information about what's going on, uh, grabbing what I call uh, digital data exhaust. This is you know information coming off your software-defined so network, this is, or
0: so basically to improve operational efficiency somehow. Well, not just that, right? So the the first level
1: is just to figure out if there's a problem, right? Just um, you know, building in capability smart enough to see what's going on and to see if there's something weird about to happen. And then the, the next step is I- improving your efficiency, right? So when you, now that you know that there's going to be a problem, you know, how, what can you do to make things a little bit better? What can you do to, to minimize that problem? And then the, the next step, the, the third bucket that is usually done in enterprises around collecting their data is uh, augmenting decision making. So, you know, not only, you know, are you looking at what's going wrong, not only are you you know getting in front of it, predicting, but you're getting this information to decision makers and you're helping them make better decisions. And then the that highest level is automation, where you turn it over to the machine and, you know, the machine runs the process and then it'll let you know if there's some exception that it
0: can't handle. And one of the things I point out to people, too, is that automation occurs on a spectrum, right? So just like, for example, the classic example of automation that we read about these days are self-driving cars. But the car industry defines autonomy at five different levels.
1: Yeah, you know what? And I would add to that and say that automation occurs in bits and pieces. So the ideal view of, um, of a company, or especially a digital company, is this single platform, and then you have people plugging into this platform and doing things. Now, if that's your ideal, then it makes sense to assume that the role of artificial intelligence is to make that single platform smarter, and then it can do more stuff, and then you're into this uh, Skynet or HAL type future where you know, it's eliminating people and it's making decisions on its own. Now, the more realistic version, though, the, the world that most companies live in is you're looking at a, a series of uh, sometimes disparate digital systems. And what AI allows you to do is connect those systems better or improve your interactions with those systems so that it's smarter. So what you end up doing is automating you know, all of these disparate pieces of the business, things that don't really work that well, or automating um, your interface with the system. So, you know, you're, you're doing this and fits and starts. And so it's not like, okay, we're going to, you know, completely run our business based on, you know, this intelligence. It's more like, all right, we're going to stop wasting time doing something that we could have a machine do. And then we're going to have people interact with each other better and spend their time doing the types of things that we'd rather be doing anyway.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I guess the notion is, uh, kind of look at what people are doing, particularly the people you that get paid a lot and maybe they are doing things that can be automated, and so you free up their time. So it's almost, at, like you said, bits, like at the task level, right? That's right. That's right. And uh, so so uh, we talked about data science, and you mentioned AI. So what uh, what are enterprises, what's uh, thinking among enterprises about AI in the sense that uh, are they thinking in terms of should we organize a, a group dedicated to AI? Should we hire... A chief AI officer, which is separate from a chief data officer, from a chief data scientist? Or what, what is, uh, what's the typical enterprise reaction to all the hullabaloo around AI?
1: <laughs> uh, most enterprises are at the exploratory phase. So some of the most advanced enterprises have essentially tasked their data science team to do pilots um, and to you know, start to explore. And, but most of the companies are just trying to, to figure out what it's all about. They're, they're really looking for leadership in this area, not in the sense of, you know, let me get on TV or, you know, into a, um, on, on a stage and present a whole bunch of cool stuff that, you know, is going to intimidate and confuse you. But I'm talking about leadership in the sense of let's sit here, let's talk about your business. Let's figure out which pieces we talked about these bits and pieces, which bits and pieces in your business we can make smarter. And then we'll take this, what we are calling artificial intelligence, and apply it into your business. So businesses are looking for, like, real scenarios. Use, so,
0: use, use cases. And, that's And, right. and uh, it would be even better if it's in their particular line of business or vertical, right? That,
1: that exactly right in fact um you know I just recently talked to uh, an electrical uh, utilities company and we talked about things like uh, fraud detection um, load planning optimization real-time supply and demand matching right that's the kind of conversation that businesses are having right now around artificial intelligence and most companies that I talk to are really just trying to get a portfolio down they really just want to get a realistic Christmas list of things that they should should go after. That's where most companies are with artificial intelligence.
0: We've been talking a lot about technology, but uh, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on this podcast is to uh, get your thoughts on things that are related to data, data science and AI, but uh, are maybe not directly technical. I mean, uh, they're increasingly becoming technical in nature, but not directly technical. So first uh, set of topics are around ethics, fairness, and bias. And uh, as we talk, right, so this is a week where uh, Facebook has been in the news along with Cambridge Analytica over basically kind of, I would say, uh, bad practices around data sharing. So based on your conversations with companies, are these issues things that come up and and how are they uh, grappling with these issues?
1: Oh gosh. Okay, so the first question is do they come up? Yeah, they're they're top of mind. So, uh, you know, like like you said, we've seen some really dramatic examples. What happens, you know, the kind of carnage that you can find yourself in pretty quickly if you don't take these issues seriously. So, the companies that I meet with, all of them actually are very concerned. This is dealing with privacy and security and ethics when you're talking about Data products, especially when you're talking about anything that has machine learning embedded into it, pr- uh, privacy, security, ethics—those so, th- are really important.
0: So, Jerry, what do they do? Do they have like uh, internal training? How did they actually go about addressing some of these things? Yeah, this is where we
1: come to problems because a majority of the companies—well, I'd say a lot of the companies—have the re- reaction to to shut things down, right? So, what they really want to do is. You know, lock it up, uh, make sure that nothing ever gets out, and just prevent bad things from happening, which you know I can understand in the climate that we're in, but you know it, it's difficult reminding clients that you know you also have a responsibility to put out you know functionality to do things that are of value so the first struggle that we have is just trying to draw this balance between okay, you know we're, we're going to need to keep things safe and we're gonna need to keep things secure but Let's not sacrifice the portfolio of things that you want to make sure that you do for your clients. So the first thing is just making sure that that portfolio that we've been talking about isn't overly balanced or it isn't destroyed really by just locking things down. Now, the next thing that that companies uh, tend to do is the ones that are able to get past the initial fear and start to make progress we really take a playbook out of microservices. Now that's going to sound weird because you know microservices is really all about. Well, the presentations that I've heard, it's really been about architectural concerns. But one of the tenets of microservices is to focus. You know, to focus on the minimum viable uh, domain or set of services. You know, focus all the way down to a small service that's going to be meaningful. If you can do that in an enterprise, then this whole notion, the scary, vague notion of privacy and security, all of a sudden starts to become tenable. Right? All of a sudden it starts to become viable for us to put in place privacy and security concerns that's going to help us given the small scope that we're focusing on. So that's the next step is getting clients to actually start to focus on, you know, the particular services that we want to put out and to keep that scope as small as possible.
0: So there's also fairness and bias and uh, in analytics and machine learning. So we hear about examples of algorithms being trained and in, in, uh, training data that's maybe not representative of the larger population that they're going to be unleashed on. And so are these the sorts of things that come up when you talk to companies?
1: Oh, yeah. They, they come up when we talk to companies. They come up in the work that we do for clients. In fact, let me, let me see. I, I'd like to share with you just a quick story as to how it comes up. And then I want to share with you some best practices that I've seen work uh, in the enterprise. So Ben, are you familiar with the HIMSS conference, H-I-M-S-S?
0: You know what, Uh, I just learned about it last week. <laughs> okay. Yeah, huge conference. Huge. Right? Uh, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, it's like forty thousand people descend on Las Vegas, uh, and it's crazy. It's a medical and technology conference, and this year, you know, HIMSS uh, was uh, recent. I think it was just a couple uh, month ago. Um, but I was there, and we DxC had a booth, and I was showing off one of the algorithms that we had written around discovering cohorts for patients. So if you're a patient and you get diagnosed with an illness, especially if it's a chronic illness, one of the best things that you can do for your health is start to manage as much as possible yourself. Get active. Find a support group. If you get diagnosed with diabetes, find other people who have the same diagnosis and have the same circumstances as you and manage it together. Start eating together. You know, Work out together. Talk about the troubles that you're going through. It's the best way of managing your health. Well, one way that you know algorithms and machine learning can help with that is for patients who Opt into this kind of thing. We can look at all of the observations and start to automatically create these cohorts, these suggested cohorts, so that when you get your diagnosis, we can also help you with finding people in your general vicinity that might be good for you to network with. Now, as I was creating, you know, flashback to a couple months ago when I was creating the first version of this algorithm, right? I'm taking the data and I'm running the first version uh, of this algorithm on the data, and it starts to spit out the results i'm checking over the results to make sure that they're okay and of course early on i see a huge red flag in the results ben do you care to take a guess at some of the ways that this might go wrong
0: uh you know
1: is it age related age related okay the big one was uh race and gender okay um immediately. The algorithm just started grouping people by race and gender. You know, hey, you're a black man. Here are other black men that you might want to. Oh, yeah, yeah. Of there. course, of yeah. course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's an example of bias, ethics, and fairness, right? Being able to make sure that you have an algorithm, you know, that, that you check your algorithm and you don't expose yourself. To but, that, but,
0: but Jerry, this is you. You, you, you actually uh, uh, went about checking. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, right. so um,
1: now we can get into some of the things that you do to make sure that you protect yourself against that, because checking is just one of those things in order to. and But, air, but, uh, the,
0: but uh, how many people will uh, go through the checklist that you're about to tell me? It's based, pretty, based, based on based on uh, your interaction with companies. Are they even aware of this checklist that you're going to tell me?
1: OK, a couple answers to your question. First of all, every project that we do we advise this checklist so awesome. you know awesome. we, yeah we, we won't do a project it, it's it's core to what's required for it now you know how many companies do this without going through this checklist i'm not sure but i'm imagining those are the times when you see these really spectacular failures out in the
0: marketplace That's... well at, the, at least you personally any any project you're involved with uh, this happens and so sorry for interrupting you but let's go over the checklist Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So standard checklist
1: that, you know, we bring to projects and, you know, from, from our point of view, that's like a hundred percent because this is required for what we do. But first we, we, we have to build forensics tools. And then the next practice is to use those forensics tools to profile the algorithm. And then after we have a profile, we anticipate its behavior and then we, get together diverse group and we assess the enterprise risk. So let me take you through each one of these. The first is in building a set of algorithm forensics tools. And we think of it, you know, like, you know, well, I think forensics is a is a good term for it because it's all about analyzing an algorithm's behavior based on its output. So you have to have a good log of what you're putting in and what you're getting out. And you have to have tools that are able to analyze that stream of data to figure out um You know, what are the different, the relevant aspects of how the algorithm makes decisions? And from there, you can start to build a profile. That is, you can start to look at, okay, here are the values that it it weights. You know, maybe it's looking at race, maybe it's looking at age. And then here's how it makes predictions based on what it's taking in. And the idea here is that you develop a profile just like you would any other person or organism. You are getting insight into the algorithm's psychology you're starting to understand
0: yeah so you're understanding basically uh how the algorithm works at some finer level and uh basically but uh, just to uh, emphasize this to our listeners but you're not actually sacrificing the underlying performance along the way you're just making sure that the performance doesn't come at the cost of bias
1: that's right. And we make this difference between understanding the psychology and interfering with the biology, right? So we're not doing the equivalent of taking a PET scan of the algorithm and messing with the insides. What we are doing is, you know, understanding what its performance profile is going to be like, right? We're understanding its tendencies, you know, what so a, a general that's, profile.
0: That's, that's great. So before you actually unleash it on the world, you have some understanding. That's right. And it, this is not just an upfront activity, right? So this
1: building this profile is something that you have to update because you have to understand when you're looking at algorithms as organisms, there is an expectation that this thing is going to evolve. Right, so this is not like you know traditional software where the features that you end up with a month from now are the same ones that you ship. Right, you have to anticipate this thing is going to learn new features. So this idea of profiling an algorithm, this has to be continuous. It's not just something that you do before you unleash it. You're doing this as it is learning as well. So you're constantly updating your understanding of again the psychology of this algorithm.
0: Yeah, because uh, the way the way a model behaves on training data is very different than what it would, than the way it might behave in the wild. That's right. And the way it behaves next week in
1: the wild should be, or will likely be different than how it's behaving right now in the wild, which gets us to the third thing in, in the four steps. The third step is using that profile to constantly anticipate the behavior of the algorithm. So this is a statistical exercise where you are, you know, if you're creating an algorithm that, you know, generates loans, you, you should be able to create a profile that, I'm sorry, approves people for loans. You should be able to create a profile that says, here are the demographics, given the way that the algorithm behaves now, here are the demographics of the people who are likely to be approved and denied for loans in the next week, in the next month, in the next year. Or with the example that I just gave you, you know, here are the major factors or here are the the demographics of the cohorts that are likely to be created by this algorithm in the next week, in the next month, in the next year, right? So anticipating the algorithm's behavior.
0: So Jerry, does this also, so let's stick with kind of a a single model, let's say for credit risk profiling or something like that. And then you're developing it, you're doing this profile, you're doing the forensics, you're monitoring it, and so on and so forth. But does this also imply then that you try to stay away from algorithms that are less explainable? So here I'm thinking about things like deep learning.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And that gets us back to this idea of understanding the psychology versus the biology. So I I try to take this uh, organism metaphor, that's how we understand what we're doing. We screen people we, we have a lot of experience, people in general, dealing with intelligent beings, that is each other, right? And some of the basic common sense that we've developed is applicable, you know, in AI and machine learning. One of the things that you do is, you know, you try to understand the basic psychology of a person, how they're going to behave, how they're going to react. But like I said before, you you don't necessarily need, no one has ever asked for a PET scan of my brain, right? Although I've been profile for a lot of different positions, you know, asked about my tendencies and such. So the idea here is that we don't necessarily have to shy away from or even mess with the insides of the algorithm itself. What we really want to do is get an understanding of its manifest behavior and get a deep enough understanding that we can actually get ahead of it, predict it and on a reliable basis.
0: Got it. Got it. So you treat, you treat the algorithm as a black box. But it's a black box where you kind of know how it will behave. Given this sort of input, we anticipate this sort of behavior.
1: That's right. That's right. You have an understanding of it and how we expect it to behave.
0: So actually, uh, this is interesting because I gave a keynote at Strata Singapore, which I wrote up, which uh, is basically arguing for machine learning tools to augment machine learning engineers (laughs) because precisely because of the sort of things you've described. Because uh, what you've described is basically a framework for monitoring and, and, uh, and uh, ma- ensuring that a single model behaves uh, well. But imagine a world where we have millions of these things going on, right? So we need tools for people who are doing the monitoring to be able to keep up with this flood of models in production.
1: Yeah. And so you had a really I saw that talk. It's a really interesting talk about, you know, amongst other things, using machine learning to help you with machine learning. And you well, know, a,
0: bit, a bit of a tautology, but
1: <laughs> you know, it, no, it, it made perfect sense to me yeah. because, you know, even with, um, you know, even beyond just a scale. Right. And I'm talking to scale in terms of I got to manage a whole bunch of these models. Right. Even with a single model the level of complexity with a single model is such that these the first 3 of the 4 steps that I've been talking about building the tools profiling an algorithm and anticipating its behavior most of those 3 are supported by other machine learning you know algorithms so you know even if you're just looking at one algorithm that you're dealing with usually the complexity is high enough to, to where you need to employ other machine learning to, to keep up to do those first three out of the four steps now the first three are, are mostly technical and that fourth one uh, that you know we'll get to in just a, a second here. that fourth one is more um, qualitative.
0: And so as as you talk with clients because you you are basically uh, taking uh, your framework for uh, monitoring models out into the world, is there a level of education you still need to do or are they already aware? Uh, about these things?
1: No, it requires a education, and we get that education through participating. So you, you learn as you go. So the idea is, um, you know, we're, we're all on board that, you know, handling ethics, fairness, and bias is really important. Now, we're going to take you through how that's actually done because uh, enterprises aren't usually, you know, real savvy about the, the specific tactics for how that gets done. So participation is really important. In fact, that gets us to the the last step, which is assessing the enterprise risk, which is the one that requires the most participation on the part of the client. This is where you get everybody uh, involved and you sit down. This is a diverse group of people. And you look at the anticipated behavior of the algorithm. This is done on an ongoing basis. And you get the, the people involved to assess what the risk is. So in the case of Uh, The HIMSS, the stuff that we showed at HIMSS, we have a healthcare CTO, we have a chief medical officer, you know, board certified doctor, we have uh, representatives from the clients, we all sit down and we start talking about, okay, here's the behavior of the algorithm that we're seeing and here's what we anticipate uh, it's going to be doing, let's talk about what risks that exposes us to. So, you know, you asked about what is the education process like, it's participating. Right, it's uh, understanding how to handle this by actually going through and doing it and managing these models.
0: So then, uh, as you as you uh, interact with companies, right? So you interact with uh, their internal data people, internal data science teams. Is are you under the impression that issues around ethics, fairness, and bias is something that th- those internal teams? Teach each other about? Do they have like uh, training programs now inside companies around these issues?
1: First, we interact
0: with both the data science team, but this
1: requires participation from the lines of business owners as well. So, you know, it's not just a technical task, right? It's right, not just something right. where, you know, you turn to the data scientists and say, hey, make sure that this is ethical and fair and unbiased, right? This is something that the entire company needs to take ownership of. Now, companies usually do a really good job of training in the sense of raising this as an issue, right? So getting people to understand that you have to handle ethics and fairness and bias, there's usually pretty mature programs in place for doing that. But where companies have problems is in the specific tactics right. For, right. for doing that, for making sure that what you put out is aligned with the ethics of the group of the company that you work in. And that's a, a lot of what um, DXC steps in and helps the clients with.
0: And honestly, that's kind of uh, what my my sense is too, Jerry, is the fact that there's a lot of stories. So people have read a lot of the stories and there have been a lot of talks and a lot of the talks are basically uh, collections of these stories of bad behavior and unfair algorithms and things like that. But I think we're still in the early phases of what you're referring to as tactics and prescriptive actions and frameworks for people. That's right. That's right. That's what I'm seeing as well. As we close here, I did want to ask you about one topic. Of course, we're in the U.S., but the uh, privacy, particularly in other parts of the world, is an important issue. So are you also hearing about this new regulation from the EU called GDPR? Oh, yeah. Big deal.
1: Um, in fact, you know, it's causing us to you know, create whole new departments and offerings and um, really focus on GDPR inside DXC. So, yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a very big deal.
0: And so uh, what's the level of readiness and preparation? Because we're talking about something that's going to come online in May, right? May twenty May five.
1: Yeah, now that I'm actually not sure. So I myself am not a GDPR expert. Um, you know, as a data scientist that, you know, the preserving privacy and protecting the privacy is really important. So I have my experts on speed dial, but you know. Really sitting down with clients and consulting with them specifically on um, GDPR issues isn't something that I do on a day-to-day basis. So I'm not exactly sure where companies are on the maturity scale, but I do know that it's a big deal, something that we're ramping up to prepare for, and that you know, it's going to require a lot of work by companies to make sure that they're compliant.
0: So I wanted to close on a, uh, uh, basically uh, culture. You're now a distinguished technologist at your company. So you're probably interacting with uh, newer data scientists, basically new to the industry and not as experienced as you. so do you do much mentoring? yeah, you and, know and, I and, and and before as you answer that i wanna i wanna force you to give <laughs> give me two or three pieces of advice that you would give to a beginning data scientist.
1: Uh, okay. All right. So the question is, do I do mentoring? And I'm going to give you three pieces of advice for uh, a new data scientist. And I'll tell you how I chose the three in just a second. So yes, fortunately, because this is the type of thing that I really like doing, I get plenty of opportunities to do mentor everything from uh, running our co-op program, our data science co-op program, to you know, managing a team, to being able to uh, teach classes. I get plenty of opportunities to mentor people at various stages of their career uh, around data science. So my advice to uh, beginning data scientists is actually advice to you know everyone all the way up to mid-career data scientists, which is all about focus on what's important for the actual implementation of enterprise-scale data science. So I think most of us have seen this Venn diagram out there around what you know, constitutes data science skills. It's a combination of computer science, domain expertise, mathematics, and statistics. That's a good starting point, but my advice is to take a more realistic view of the types of skills that you actually need. So from my experience, um, well, first of all, let me give a disclaimer and say, you know, the more information that you want to get, the more skills you want to get, the better. But when you're talking about focusing on what's going to help you on a practical scale, right, you go from computer science to a, a very small subset of professional data science programming. It's really just about professional hacking. So my first advice to you know data scientists is to learn and master the art of professional hacking. By that, I mean being able to responsibly copy and paste code. Being able to refactor code, you know, being able to get it to where you want it to be in these small, meaningful steps. Second piece of advice is having domain expertise is good, um, but oftentimes the problems that you're working on will require expertise outside of what you can reasonably have. The thing that's going to be the most valuable to you isn't your ability to, you know, know the domain, but it's to be able to collaborate with people who do know the domain. So my second piece of advice is to invest time and energy into learning how to do agile experiments, how to sit down with an expert in the field and explain what you do in relatable enough terms that they can get it, and to be able to listen well enough to understand very quickly the problems that they're dealing with and what you're gonna have to do in order to solve their problems. So that agile experimentation is a very big deal. The third piece of advice is, yeah, the foundational mathematics and statistics is help, It's you know, necessary for understanding you know, the basics of the algorithms and how they work. But the thing that you really use in practice is the ability to evaluate hypotheses, I'm not talking about in the sense of, you know, in the formal sense of like, you know, calculating p-values, but I'm talking about if I make a statement about the world, something like, I don't know, I believe that the weather in a country is, you know, directly correlated with its GDP, right? You should be able to design an experiment to evaluate that hypothesis, collect the right data that you need run the right algorithms and look at the results and tell me whether or not that supports or refutes the hypothesis and tell me, you know, what's wrong, what might be wrong with the experiment. So that's the third piece of advice is really spend a lot of time just being able to do the science in data science, evaluating hypothesis. By the way, I took everything that I know about what it takes to succeed as a professional data scientist and I put it into this ebook that you know, I, I got to publish with O'Reilly Media called Going Pro in Data Science. It's free. And so you know, I, I definitely recommend that you know, download it and take a, take a look. It's a quick read.
0: Yes, I uh, highly recommend that too. And uh, Jerry, this has been great. I know you're a busy guy. So thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me on. This has been great. You can follow Jerry Overton on Twitter at Jerry A. Overton. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.